Good evening, and welcome to this very special live recording of WNJY, a podcast for YMCA professionals brought to you by YPN Chapter 17 and Metro YMCA of the Oranges in partnership with the New Jersey State Alliance of YMCAs. I'm your host, Nyan Oziri from the Sussex County YMCA, and I thank you very much for making time to be a part of our event tonight. I also want to thank Darren Anderson, President and CEO of the Y Alliance, and Ed Phillips, Senior Vice President, Chief Operating Officer of Metro YMCA of the Oranges for their partnership in making this event possible. For folks who cannot join us today, our discussion is being recorded for future release on the WNJY podcast website platforms, including our website, ypnchapter17.org. WNJY is also available on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. As we progress over the next hour, I invite participants to put questions and comments into the chat, which we will intersperse into the conversation as time allows. On April 23rd, 1998, Rayshawn Brown, Jermaine Grant, Keyshawn Moore, and Danny Reyes hopped into Moore's van to drive down to North Carolina Central University basketball tryout. USA Today reported it was on the New Jersey Turnpike heading south that evening when state troopers John Hogan and James Kenna pulled alongside Moore, who was driving, to peer across the lean at the van and its passengers. A moment later, the state police were behind Moore's van pulling them over. While reaching for his license and registration, the van slowly rolled backwards, bumping the front fender of the police car. Moore had accidentally put the van in reverse instead of park. New Jersey State Police opened fire into the van, injuring Grant and Brown, nearly killing Reyes. The troopers were handcuffing and arresting the men while paramedics were trying to administer care. Under arrest for what, Brown asked police before being airlifted to a Trenton hospital. You guys shot us. You didn't do anything. That's what you all say, the trooper responded. Police shot Reyes six times, Grant three, and Brown twice. Fortunately, Moore was not hit by police bullets that night. None of these men made it to basketball tryouts at North Carolina Central. Troopers Hogan and Kenna were indicted on charges of attempted murder and aggravated assault, which were eventually dropped, but they were forced to resign after pleading guilty to lying to investigators and falsifying documents to cover up the simple fact that they pulled these men over because they were Black, according to articles published by the New York Times. In 2001, Moore, Reyes, Grant, and Brown received a $12.9 million settlement from the state of New Jersey, but the state never accepted any guilt. In the 24 years since then, all four men have had to reinvent themselves and somehow find the strength and wherewithal to get past the night New Jersey state troopers tried to take it all away. Please welcome to WNJY, Rayshawn Brown, Jermaine Grant, and Danny Reyes, three of the four men also known as the Jersey Four. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I know that I am super pumped to talk to y'all and I know that there are plenty of folks on this um, podcast and also um, this call that are very excited. So thank you again for joining us. Um, Thanks thank for having you. us. Thank y'all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. Um, you know, unfortunately, Keyshawn wasn't able to make it tonight, um, but I do want to just kind of talk a little bit about kind of like some of the other organizations and um, entities that you've spoken to. So what are some of the other, you know, places that people can kind of hear your story or that you've spoken to or organizations or anything like that? Well, we, we had a big um, uh, uh, feature on Slam Magazine, um, you know, uh, uh, right around the same time as the pandemic year. Uh, so that, that was a nice story. Uh, we've done Sports Illustrated back in the day. They had a nice feature for us and um, of course all, all the newspapers and um, you know we've done uh, from ESPN, Stephen A. Smith to uh, uh, um, the, uh, MSG Network with the uh, New York Knicks. They uh, sponsored some uh, fundraisers and, and events with us and, and, and allowed us to come to some of their shows on MSG to tell our story. So uh, yeah, I mean over the years we definitely have uh, a lot of, uh, you know, before social media and now through social media, um, continue to tell our story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, why do you feel like so many people want to hear your story? And, and why do you feel like it resonates with them, you know, not only then, but now? 
Um, this is just as Jermaine Grant. Um, because, uh, you know, number one, you know, we're not victims, we're survivors. So, um, you know, we actually live to tell our story. So, as you know, you know, the, um, the Abdul Diallas of the world, the Sean Bells, you know, the Sandra Blands that weren't able to talk to investigators and talk to people, you know, um, about what really happened before their demise. You know, the George Floyds in the world, as we've seen, which was years and years after our situation, a public execution, you know. Um, so, you know, and this was before social media. So um, the fact that, you know, we all survived and we all triumphed and to do good things in the community and continue to do good things um, is, is, is amazing. So people are just willing to hear you know, how do we turn, most important, how do we turn our negative into a positive? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, like your story speaks to so many different parts and we'll definitely get into that, but, you know, so many things to talk about. I'm, I'm just pumped. <laughs> so, all right. So, you know, go ahead, Danny. I was going to say, unfortunately, it still continues to be a major issue when you talk about racial profile and police brutality and those sort of things. So, you know, it's, it's relatable the same way it was 20 years ago because, you know, it's still a major issue in America. So we still have to push, you know, forward. It's like a, another ending battle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, y'all definitely talked about it with the, like you said, the Amadou Diallo's, the, the Sean Bell's, the George Floyd, the Trayvon Martin's. Unfortunately, the list gets longer and longer, you know, every day, every year, every, you know, every decade. Um, but, you know, I think, when it comes to being able to speak to folks um, like yourself that have gone through these things, it's super um, enlightening because we get to hear from y'all exactly how it went down, what happened. And then also, you know, the things that people don't see the, you know, the struggles, the, all of the things. So, um, you know, again, we'll get into that as the night progresses um, for sure. Um, so, you know, I know that y'all were definitely headed down to NC Central um, to go and, um, you know, try out for the basketball team. Um, you know, what was it about basketball that drew all of you to the sport by chance? If you want to talk about that, Rayshon, we'll start with you. Um, well, basketball for me was, uh, a, a love, a passion. It was enjoyment. It was, uh, fulfilling. It was like my, my life. So, um, meeting up with Keyshawn, to make this happen was a beautiful thing in the making, you know. And basketball is more than just, you know, a one-on-one -on -one situation. It's a team thing. And it also helps you unite with others out there. So through the basketball community, me playing basketball, I got a chance, you know, to unite with quite a, quite a few different folks all over. Great. Um, how about you, Danny? What drew you, what drew you to basketball? That means you want to go and pursue this dream. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I fell in love with basketball as soon as pretty early. Like I would say, about the age of um, seven, eight years old, when I when when my uh, my family put me to play. Um, originally, they put me to play baseball. Right, I'm, I'm, I, I was still living in Puerto Rico. I was born in Puerto Rico, and um, but once they put me to play basketball, I excelled right away. I, I was, you know, I was taller than a lot of the kids. And um, I kept developing. I was fortunate enough to have um, mentors and, and coaches early that, that taught me the game right. So, uh, you know, by the time um, I got into junior high school, going into high, uh, high school, you know, I, I was already uh, getting ranked and getting recruited. Uh, so I, I saw that it was bringing opportunities. Like I was able to go to a private school because of basketball. And and then shortly after that, in high school, I started getting recruited. So. That, that that became my thing, my future. I knew it was my way to get myself um, out of the, the the neighborhood, the hood. And, um, you know, and, and that's the one thing that basketball did provide, just provided, you know, a, a lot a lot more options uh, when it came to, you know, becoming a man. And um, so I just went all out to pursue it. Right. Uh, Jermaine, what about you? Um, pretty much uh, same story. Um, I was the late bloomer in basketball. I started playing basketball when I was about uh, 13, 14. Um, and I really didn't like the sport in the beginning. Um, I would say my, one of my saving grace, um, you know, 
going to a school in Harlem, um, IS, no, IS-175, um, sitting in the principal's office for being disruptive, <laughs> as I always was. Um, some, a legendary coach named Tiny Archibald came into the gym and um, and pulled me out and gave you know just gave me the history of basketball and um, it kind of kind of drew something in me and from that point on it was kind of like uh, I, I use this one quote and it, this one quote is going to stay with me forever um, you know if I was born around doctors and lawyers I would have been you know practiced doctors and lawyers but where I, where I was born and raised in was um, in Harlem, right during the crack era. Um, you know, either you had a jump shot or you were slinging crack rock. So um, I decided to, to work on my jump shot. And uh, and to piggyback off of what Danny said, it was just a way of doing something positive around so much negativity. So, um, you know, then I started to excel, um, went from there to Rice High School. And then from there, from there, went to Westchester Community College. And then that's when I met Keyshawn. And from that, that's when, you know, after I left Westchester Community College, decided to take the trip um, to North Carolina Central, where that night I met Danny and I met Rayshawn. Yeah, so y'all were trying to position yourself to, you know, just be better humans and, and make a better life for yourselves and your families and potentially your communities. So, you know, obviously that comes with some sort of notoriety in and of itself, but, you know, with everything that y'all have gone through, it's a different type of notoriety, right? Like, unfortunately, this horrible event happened to y'all and now you have to navigate a different type of notoriety. So how have you been able to navigate all of the attention that your ordeal has brought to all of y'all? Um, whoever would like to start first. <laughs> um, Stretch. Oh, okay. Right. You want to go, Jermaine? Yeah, you got it. Oh, good. Oh, no, I was real quick, you know, structure, family, um, and knowing the fact that all four, all four of us have been through this, you know, this situation. Um, we, we ourselves personally just stayed close. You know, um, like I said, that night, you know, uh, we bonded through basketball and and ever since then we've been bonded through life. You know, these not only been, you know, um, four brothers that I've shared this, you know, this journey with, but they are really, um, you know, they've, they've, they've been adopted by my family the way I've been adopted by theirs. And, you know, um, you know, so whenever we go through, you know, whether it's mental, you know, mental, physical, emotional, we know that we can depend on one another to keep each other strong. Absolutely. Go ahead, Ray. Uh, I was going to say that um, we united uh, so tightly that night that it just brought us over to where we at now. And whenever we are talking at any event or having any speaking engagement, it just, it feels so right. It feels so good to be next to like my brothers. Like, I feel like these are really my brothers. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, I, and also, you know, the, the fact that our story um, was before the social media craziness, right, that goes on today, um, you know, it was a national story. It was, con you know, in every newspaper and it was constantly on the news in the beginning. So, um, but, you know, I feel like if that, that happens now, like way more people know you, you know, back then I used to run into people every once in a while, like, Oh, you that kid from sports illustrator. Uh, oh, I saw you on, on the ESPN or oh, I saw you on CNN, but you know, it's not like today where like everybody, everybody would, would definitely, you know, recognize us a lot more now, you know uh, we, you know, we use the, the, the internet now to at least be able to tell our story again. And uh, we have a foundation and we continue to uh, not only uh, be a part of basketball through the youth, but also, um, you know, do uh, Q and A's and speaking engagements as well. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I embrace it at this point. Um, you know, it, it's 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 almost like we kind of went natural into it because uh, you know of we saw how you know things have changed uh, when it comes to you know <laughs> everybody getting to know the hot story right away, right? So, uh, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, but at the same time, I, I, I always, 
you know, for the last 20 years, any time that we've done a Q&A, uh, whether it's for older people or, or kids, it becomes a very interesting uh, experience when people come with all different types of questions because they can still relate somehow, some way to one of us or all of us. Right, absolutely. And I mean, I, again, I think it just goes back to the fact that there, you know, these types of incidents keep happening. Um, so even though your story is not necessarily, it's 24 years old, the premise, the underlying structure of what, you know, brought it to be a story is still very prevalent in our communities. Um, so to speak about that, you know, what is it like for you when you hear and learn of different, you know, incidents of police profiling? Like, you know, does it take you back to your experience? Do you, are you sad? Are you upset? Like, can y'all just talk a little bit about that? It is frustrating, you know, especially, you know, in the last, um, I would say the last four or five years, I guess that's why, you know, everything hit the fan during the pandemic, because it, it just feels now that more is happening, but maybe it's still the same. It's just, it's more cameras. It's more people witnessing what actually happens. And um, you know, it just shows that, you know, we, we can't be complacent. We still got to, you know, fight for equality in this country. Um, you know, policing is very complicated because it really changes by state by state, city by city, town by town. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of it's a lot of variables that as in order to, you know, improve uh, policing in America, because it's not just one thing, because it, you know, as we know, there's two there's two different Americas going on at the same time. Yeah, and, and I also think that, um, you know, piggyback of what Danny said, it, it's it's difficult. You know, you got city city policy, one city policy is not the same in another city policy versus state. So um, um, it's, well, just a couple of weeks ago, well, last week, we uh, we actually drove down to uh, Atlantic City to a no Noble. It's the, um, the conference of uh, law enforcement, black law enforcement. And we was, we was invitees down there to tell our story, you know, to um, show a, sh a short part of the documentary to do a Q&A. And we realized that that you know each state is different when it comes to the, the the bylaws of of racial profiling and policing and you know et cetera et cetera so um there's not one it's not like one it's not like the un where you go and you have this big conference and you say okay let's leave this building and let's go and and have the same laws in each state so um it's, it's very complicated and so that that keeps us you know, keep the fight going because, um, like I said, we can tell our story and it's, it's not only inspirational, but it's encouraging. And we are an example of what it really means to, uh, to, to keep the fight going. It's uh, upsetting uh, when those things happen again, like police brutality, racial profiling, especially what happened to us in 1998 and to see here we are in 2022 and still moving forward, it's still happening, even though it also happened before I was born, late, you know, back in the days, you could take it from the 50s on up. So it's like, now they're making it seem like modern day lynching, like I can get away with it. That's how I'm analyzing it because these officers are out here killing us, you know, innocent people with, that's doing no wrong. Or even if someone is doing a little something that seems, you know, a little questionable, they still first approach is to kill now. So things do have to change. We're going to continue to fight and, you know, tell our story and to be advocates for those voices that aren't available. You know, those who passed away based off of police brutality and racism. And I'm just, you know, we're going to just keep fighting and pushing forward for this, you know, for things to change. And we know it like, it's hard to get the system to change because it has to go through a lot of protocols, but I'm optimistic. I'm positive thinking. I'm like something may happen in the future. I may or may not be here, but hopefully things can change so we can, you know, have a peaceful world. And, uh, um, you know, just to piggyback once again, um, I would like to just make a statement to everyone listening and, from near and above and far, we are not anti-police. And we, we want people, we, we do not have ill feelings towards police. 
we actually some of some of us come from law enforcement back family law enforcement background so um we advocate you know um you know we get the you know weirdest questions you know about you know defunding police and abolishing police and i said you know i used to use that phrase hey, have you ever seen the movie the purge you know what i'm saying so we actually need police we just need the good police the bad police to fear the good police so um you know um and you on this podcast, my, you know, why, you know, I used to play for the PAL. So these programs, police officers are involved. So we need to get, um, somehow get the public to have confidence in what law enforcement can do in a positive way. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think it's really telling to all of, to everyone. And then especially, you know, a testament to y'all that Y'all are still optimistic that things can change. Um, you know, I'm sure I, I feel as though anybody that went through with what y'all went through would, you know, would be bitter and upset and just be like, you know, well, whatever to them, you know, but y'all are still out here. Y'all are trying to make the changes, do the work to push, you know, you know, a positive world forward. So again, hats off to y'all. Um, I believe we have a question in the chat. So Michael, if you'd like to go ahead and share that with us. That'd be awesome. Thanks, Naya. <clears throat> uh, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, so Janet asked a relevant question. Do, do any of you or do either of you or um, still feel, uh, do you feel targeted by police? Well, I, I wouldn't say, I, I would say yes or no. Um, Cause I can see, I can see a, a flashlight behind me and still get nervous. But when, use the word targeting as far as um, what we've been through to experience it again. No, but yes, because we all, you know, we all live in our life the best way we can. And, you know, we drive vehicles that we're not supposed to drive. <laughs> so that there is, is, is used as an intimidation factor on, on, on their part to try to um, rattle us, um, you know, it's just, you know, it's that old, it's that old story. Like, well, well, how did you get this car? Like, uh, uh, how did you live in this building? Or, well, you know, how did you know about this restaurant and this location? So, you know, it's, it's being targeted on a, on a different way, you know, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still that, that nervous factor, not that fear factor, because the one thing that we all can agree with that, the best way for your life to be saved is try not to try not to aggravate, try not to upset, try not to, you know, answer questions within a protocol, you know, um, yes, sir, no, sir. And try to try to get home safety of your family. Um, yeah, I mean, it, to the question, definitely in the last 20 years, for, for sure, I've been racially profiled and pulled over uh, a number of times. Um, you know, I, I live in Jersey now, so uh, even if it's not the state troopers on the highway, it's, uh, it's those little municipality uh, places, just me trying to get home. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and not only that, um, I've been profiled where when they find out who I was, they helped me get home because at one time I was just actually lost. I took the wrong turn. And they looked at my ID. That was early. And then they gave me an escort out of there. And then I've been profiled with, like, they're, like, um, tell me, oh, you you, you one of those guys that ran over to try to run over the police. So, you know, I got in both. You know, <laughs> I can tell you at least over 30 times that I got pulled over in, in, in different situations. And, um, you know, just straight profile. So, yeah, absolutely, it still exists. I mean, you know, you can blame it on Jermaine is saying about cars or whatever. It's simple. They they racially profile. You know, we're not saying it doesn't necessarily have to be because you have a, a nice car. Well, that means you know, but but that's but that's the that's the stereotype. You know, like I said, we could all share a different opinions on stuff, and you know that keeps the conversation going. But you know, for me, I speak well. You know, what I'm saying, I, you know, I speak well. I know, but this the darker my skin is, the more dangerous it is for me to be in certain areas and drive certain cars. You know what I'm saying? I get, you're going to get profiled anyway, but I'm a Dawson. I'm a Dawson brother. You know what I'm saying? You can't hide that when you walk in the Chase Bank. You can't hide that when you walk 
in, into Mercedes dealership. You can't hide that when you're taking your daughter to school. So me being this dark skin man that I am, shoot, it, it just doesn't go away. If I was, if it, <laughs> you know, complexion for the protection, I don't have the complexion for the protection. Uh, since our incident, yes, I still have been profiled. Uh, like Jermaine saying, driving certain vehicles, you get profiled for the vehicle. Like Danny said, they saw my license one time. It's like, oh, you one of the guys that ran the police over. Same thing happened to me. I also live in New Jersey. I've been also pulled out of my vehicle, sat on the curve while they ransacked through my vehicle for no reason. And these were black cops, you know? I also been tailed, followed all the way home. Oh, they watched me get out my vehicle, flash the light on me. Things like that happened, yeah, since our case. It's outrageous, but I also know how to maneuver through it and not allow it to affect me. Something that Danny said real quick, I just want to make sure to clarify for, for listeners who may have missed the introduction. Danny, when you said that you sometimes you're recognized or one of you is recognized as, as one of the guys that tried to run over the police. That's referring to when the, when you guys got pulled over and the car rolled, correct? Correct. Right. Because their, their story was that there was in fear of the lies, the car was coming at them and there was on the floor shooting up. Like, like we were literally trying to run them over. Um, and you know, that's just not what happened. Um, you know, even witnesses, had the same account as far as their life was never in danger. There was only just shooting into the car and the car was never coming at them physically. Um, but yeah, you know, definitely uh, out of sarcasm, uh, it happened to me one time uh, where, where a police officer that pulled me over said that to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, can y'all just talk a little bit about the you know, the road to recovery, like what was it like for y'all to recover from the physical and also psychological drama, uh, you know, of your incident? Um, for me, it was, uh, it was, it was rough. It was hard. It was a struggle more so mental than physical. Cause I was able to bounce back physically, uh, pretty quickly, I would say. But mentally, I wasn't able to bounce back um, to the state I was comfortable with being within myself uh, or being myself, rather. Spent two hard years uh, visiting a therapist, uh, psychiatrist, uh, physical therapy, reconstructive surgery done to my right arm to fix it so I could get mobility in my right arm. Um, but the mental part, you know, that was a, a big struggle for me. Uh, really big struggle for me, you know. Um, every day, questioning why did I get shot? Was I supposed to get shot? Um, what's going on in this world? Like, why white people are acting like this towards black people? Uh, I leave out of a neighborhood of violence, and I'm bettering myself by going to get an education, a higher learning area like college, and here I'm being, uh, trying, or they tried to assassinate us. And, you know, it, all those things was just running through my head. And it got to me, you know, also the fact that I couldn't play basketball no more. Uh, my career, as far as taking basketball as a professional athlete was over. Understanding that, it was just hard. And being a young guy, and here you are at your, your peak of climbing to that next level, and it's being snatched away through the hands of someone else. And it's like, what? Like, how is this possible? Like, no, nah, this don't suppose to happen. You know, and um, i share a story with you guys. Uh, so one day I'm leaving uh, the physical therapist's office, right? And um, it's me and my mom, and we walk in. This is New York City, you know. I see my, uh, not, excuse me, not physical therapist, my psychiatrist. And um, so we're walking and I kind of sped ahead to walk ahead for my mom because there's a police officer standing at the corner. His back is to me. He's just standing there. I don't really know what he's doing. But in my head, I'm just like, this is it. I'm going to take this cop's gun and I'm going to shoot him. Like, 
he deserves to die because of what these cops did to me. And my heart was pumping hate towards police at that time. So I sped up to leave my mom. I'm walking faster and I'm like, I'm going to do this. And I put it to my mind and I went for it. Before I even got to the guy, my mom had grabbed me and hugged me so tight that my life flashed in front of me. I saw me doing it. I saw everything ending, me not being here, not even talking to you guys. I probably would have been in jail still. And I'm so proud that my mom hugged me because that day she helped me realize that it's more to life, that I had something forward to look for in life, that I had a purpose here. And for me to continue my life, that not to end it on that day, not like that. And that was a changing point of when I realized like, yeah, I can do this. I can beat this and I can move forward and continue to live. And I have since then. So for me, it, it was rough, really rough. And it still is rough to talk about it, you know, to discuss what happened because like I said, why did this happen to me? You know, what's the purpose? So yeah, yeah. Well, well, for um, you know, for me, like I said, um, it was it was mentally tough for me because you know basketball was the thing that kept me focused, and when it was just taken away from me, it was rough. You know, um, my mother would constantly talk to me about the color of my skin. I didn't know it, but you know, <clears throat> it's kind of like no matter you don't have an opportunity to be average um and she would explain to me what happened to her stories in the south and i was just like nah the world is not like that you want to think different you're you know you're around your peers you live in your neighborhood you leave your neighborhood you really realize the color of your skin can get you harassed you know i have a 21 year old daughter and for years she used to ask me like daddy do they hate us because our skin are darker? And you know how hard that is to explain to a, to a child? You know, um, it's difficult. So, you know, it didn't have that, you know, I, I, I really struggled with the fact never being racially profiled. And, well, been harassed in the neighborhood, but not racially profiled because I didn't look at it as racial profile. I looked at it as Cops just harassed, thinking that you're a drug dealer, thinking that you was doing something crazy, you know. Um, so it was kind of normal. But once you leave, you know, to go to an institute of higher learning, thinking I was going to get shot in the hood and then get shot, going to an institute of higher learning, trying to better myself, as we all were, is difficult. It's so, it's so difficult, even, you know, like I said, even to this day, it's difficult. And I still have to have these conversations with my daughter. You know about you know the is the world is not a fair place it's an evil place so you know that like i said my dark skin <laughs> puts me in a, in a in a different situation every day i step out the house yeah speak on it go ahead danny um yeah for, for me i was uh you know i got shot six times and and um i had a Still have two metal plate in my, in my arm because uh, it shattered my both of my bones in my right arm. So uh, physically, I was so messed up that uh, I wasn't even thinking about the mental part of it. You know, I did about three years of physical therapy, um, and overall, uh, I avoided some surgery. Uh, you know, I went to great doctor that just believe in just going right to the surgery board. So. Um, but I, I was improving in therapy and it did help that once I started uh, becoming strong enough to travel a little bit, I, I started doing therapy with Jermaine. So I was, you know, not doing it by myself. And that became, you know, kind of life back then. Uh, so the mental part, I was fine in a sense. Um, you know, I started writing. I started writing uh, uh, scripts um, based on everything I've gone through in life and stuff like that. Because um, it took me about a year to be able to write. Right, because my therapy was very slow in my right arm, so I couldn't I couldn't even write till like about a year later. So I I was just home with all these thoughts. So um, 
a cousin of mine was uh, into film, so he gave me a book about script writing. So I started writing, uh, mentally, I started mapping it out. So as soon as I started being able to write, I started writing scripts. So, you know, years later, I realized that that was kind of like a form of therapy, me writing the body, us working on the short documentary that we did and things like that. And now even, you know, being here speaking to you guys. So I never went to a mental uh, a psychologist, but, um, you know, I, I just thank God that, you know, I, I always been pretty strong and um, mentally, um, you know, I never had like an issue, like other than the pain, cause I had a lot of uh, nerve damage that um, they didn't allow me to sleep like a whole seven hours straight type of thing. It was more about the pains that I was going through, but the mentally, you know, I, I, I always been good uh, when it comes to that, um, you know, overall, you know, just, I, I would say I, I consider myself normal uh, when it comes to that, because, you know, I just feel, you know, I probably have the same anxieties and things that everybody else had, but um, to me, it was more about getting physically better because like, like the guy said, basketball was my life. So immediately, you know, the fact that it was the first time in my life that now I had to like set new goals and decide what I was really going to do with my life, where I was kind of like going on a path that, you know, I, I felt I didn't even need to think about what I was going to do for at least another 10 years, you know, because uh, basketball was giving me opportunities. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, you know, just everything that y'all have gone through and y'all can stand here and sit here and talk to us and say, you know what, like, it does get better and truly like triumph over tragedy, like it's remarkable. Um, you know, what do you feel like is the role of, of community-driven organizations like the YMCA when it comes to things like, um, you know, exposing and undoing structural racism and bias, or even supporting people who have gone through traumatic experiences like y'all have? Um, you know, and Rayshawn, you know, you could speak as a former YMCA employee, you know, from the Montclair Y back in the day. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, yeah, killing us in classes, you know, I remember. Um, so, yes. you know, how do you feel as though the Y can help folks like yourself, you know, become better humans and just be impactful on the community and the world? Uh, well, I was given the opportunity to, uh, to showcase my abilities, my talent, as far as being a fitness instructor and a personal trainer through the help of Washima at the Montclair YMCA back before uh, Washima left. She gave me the opportunity to work there. And during that time, it gave me a chance to help the community on the aspect of what I want, what I'm currently doing now. And what I always dreamt to do is to always help people. Um, I helped them through my fitness. I helped them through coaching because of basketball, um, other life things. You know, when I have personal training sessions with clients, I'm not just training them. Uh, through the exercises, I'm also helping them mentally with different things, questions, and that's also helping me move forward. And the YMCA was a great doorway, a great opportunity, especially in the Montclair uh, area. I got to meet a lot of people. I got to help a lot of people. And then also the Montclair uh, YMCA helped us and bring our story we uh, had a speaking engagement back then, a couple of years back at the YMCA, and that's when I was doing the YBA, I mean, excuse me, the um, travel basketball. And during that time, uh, Kimberly Griffin was uh, the director, and I explained to her my story, and I actually showed her an old document, uh, documentary, excuse me, that we had done back in the early 2000s. And she took a look at it, and then she uh, said, sure, we can present it, you know, to the, to the basketball, travel basketball team. And I had called the guys and they came in and they gave us the floor. We had an opportunity to speak to the young guys, you know, uh, to talk to them about sports and life and other endeavors. And like I said, I don't want to keep, you know, going backwards, but yes, the YMCA was a great help. Great, great help. Uh, Danny and Jermaine, do you guys have any experience with the Y or any sort of other community organizations? I know that y'all have your own orga organizations and are doing awesome things in the community, which we will talk about. But is there any sort of, um, you know, what advice would you give to folks like us who, 
you know, why professionals who are mission driven, who want to help the community and, and serve the folks in it? Well, well, I would say, you know, for me, um, growing up in, in high school in Staten Island, New York, the YMCA was a place that when I went there to play basketball, it, it, you know, it, I, it was all types of people there, you know, from all different, the way it was located, it was kind of neutral where people came from all different types of neighborhoods. So, uh, you know, kind of brought people together for all races. Um, so, uh, you know, that's why I remember it just, it kind of brings everybody together, uh, you know, sports, swimming. Uh, so it's always a cool place to go to. Um, you know, I grew up playing there. I grew up playing in the police athletic league, uh, you know, PAL. Uh, so, you know, those places are so important for, for youth that don't have anywhere else to go. You know, you, you need, you know, you need a place that you, you can meet new friends, um, get fit, get good information. And, um, you know, programs like this, like when I remember when Rayshon Board is there, we spoke to the kids, uh, you know, it, it was something real positive. It reminds me what we do with our foundation, because a lot of times when we do the basketball programs, we do um, part of the week. We do show them the documentary, do a Q&A as well to talk about, you know, um, police brutality, racial profiling, and just whatever questions they might have of life. So, uh, you know, it's important just to have that conversation too with, with everybody. Yeah, um, yeah, for me, you know, the same thing, um, you know, um, the YMCA, uh, the, the, the Harlem branch located on 135th and um, 7th Avenue between South Atlantic Avenue which, um, you know, as Rayshon and Danny said, you know, it's, it's just a place where it's just another opportunity to, to play basketball and, you know, to meet people and, you know, and just grow, which led, uh, which led me being a home to the PAL, the place athletically, which police officers actually played there and, um, you know, allowed me to play on their team as far as um, traveling team and, and different tournaments throughout, throughout Harlem and throughout the city which uh, propelled me and um, um, a couple of friends of mine that I grew up in Harlem to start an organization called the Harlem All-Star Youth Foundation, which means also Bell Basketball Education and Life Lessons. So, so the YMCA was, the, was one of the branches to, um, for, for me to branch out into other community organizations to, you know, to stay off the streets. And unfortunately, I know in New Jersey, but unfortunately, the YMCA and, you know, which we're advocating for right now with a couple of politicians in Harlem to reopen the YMCA, um, not just for shelter reasons, but for sports reasons, for recreational reasons, for um, mentor reasons. Um, so that's one of the things that me and a couple of my friends are fighting for in Harlem because we realize how intricate and how important that phase was, not just for us, but how important it is to go forward. Um, for the youth to get them off streets. I mean, we see the violence in the streets. I mean, just just this weekend, I mean, um, the, uh, the malls are being shot up in, in ways by teenagers, you know, which which is so unfortunate because, you know, you you know you, the, the gun violence, you know, the um, police brutality. I mean, but kids have no place to go. We used to be excited about summer youth. There's no more summer youth. So, and that's what the YMCA provided. That's what the PAL provided. And you don't have those outlets no more. And this is where the, the spike of young teenage violence keep rising. So we have to advocate to open up and to, to you know, to mentor these kids, but to have a, a venue to go to. And right now, a lot of these kids in the cities don't have a venue to go to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, you know, something that has been even more so exposed with you know the COVID-19 pandemic about the need for the youth to be able to go somewhere to use their you know gifts and whatnot to have a positive place to have an outlet to do the things that they were supposed to be doing you know yeah. so it's important um you know that you know community organizations like the YMCA like PAL as you were saying before um you know exist um, you know, so you got a bunch of YMCA professionals on the call that I'm pretty sure are, you know, dedicated to doing just that. So, you know, we're with you for sure. Um, you know, I think, you know, something else that, I, that, I, you know, touches me about your story is the fact that y'all are so willing to give back to your communities. 
Um, you know, why do you feel as though it's so important to do that? And then I know, Jermaine, you kind of spoke a little bit about your organizations that you're involved in, but I definitely want to talk to Danny and uh, Rishon about their involvement with any sort of organizations that they have. But why is it important to give back to your community? You know, I, oh, God, D. No, I mean, I, I think it, it just came natural from us from the beginning, um, you know, because in the beginning when, um, when the people were protesting and coming out and, you know, demanding a proper investigation for us, whether Reverend Al Sharpton and other leaders were putting these things together. And, you know, uh, so when, when I was physically um, able to start attending these rallies and things like that, and, and seeing, you know, the support that we got, um, you know, it started with, with, with that piece where if, if I can, if I need to go to DC and they invite me to go to a march or to meet with, you know, the Senator Clinton or somebody like that, I made myself available because, you know, we were lucky enough, fortunate enough to have people that rallied for us. And, you know, we got at least some type of justice, you know, where sometimes people like in, in our situation get into these type of incidents and don't don't have the proper support and you know as as you can see some some people go to jail for things that they don't even they're not even really guilty of right so um so and, and you know and I always wanted to go back and give to my community and then that just became my, my motto anywhere when it came to doing business uh, I always have to have a a piece of of that that's going to go towards the community and um, and I have done it pretty much anywhere I lived, you know, whether it's New York, New Jersey, Puerto Rico. Um, and now we finally uh, incorporated our own because we, we, we had a history of working with other bigger non-for-profit organizations. Um, and now we finally uh, have our own uh, J4 Pastor Assist Foundation, Inc. And, you know, we, we just continue to do the same work that we've been doing uh, in, in, our, in our own communities. Yes. Um, the, our, like Danny was saying, our J4 Pastor Assist, that's the foundation uh, that I'm involved with. Now we're doing our own things under our own umbrella. But as far as for me, community stuff was always in me. Uh, coming up in the Bronx, big on community, you know, the area, the neighborhood, it was a community. People were there for one another. Me uh, being a young guy, being in the YMCA back when I was a young kid, that's also being a part of the community. And then also me working with the community through the YMCA. So I was always involved and I know community relations is how to reach the people and stay connected with the people. Yeah, pretty much <laughs> once again, piggybacking, you know, the foundation that we that we are part of, the J4 Pass it means a lot to us because it keeps us involved and keeps in, in you know it's, it's just what we it was always in us because it was given to us so it's it's just more giving back you know Danny does great work in the community you know from Staten Island to Jersey to Harlem to New York Rayshawn Frontline wherever we at we 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 just wanna we just wanna constantly just give back you know I mean you know rather it's turkey drives you know um we do turkey drives we do toy drives you know um you know, I should, right? When I get off this call, I got three bags of clothes I got to take to the Salvation Army. You know what I'm saying? Like, just just, just giving back any way I can because we, tr we truly are blessed. And thank God that we're in that position and we want to spread that word because um, we are an example of what the, the next generation will listen to, you know, because uh, like Danny said earlier, you know, the one thing we was able to do was to adapt from generation to generation. So we're pretty much understandable everywhere we go from the, from the, from the youth to the elders. So we're pretty much blessed with that. Right on. All right. I think I'm going to kick it over to Michael and see if there are any extra questions in the chat right now. There's some really good questions in the chat. Um, I'm going to actually probably try to hit at least two in a row because um, I don't want to run out of time before giving these uh, perspectives some voice. Um, this first question comes from an anonymous attendee. Um, I remember this incident, your incident, like it was yesterday. I'm a black woman living in Newark, New Jersey. On many occasions while driving out of my area in particular, 
a predominantly white area, I was profiled. During your speaking engagements, discussions, and interactions, do many women discuss being racially profiled, and how has it affected them? Um, not, not as many women as men, I would say, but um, I can relate to what you know she she's saying as far as um, you know. I, I mentioned that earlier. You know, I, I I used to I used to live in Tenafly, so um, you know, in the beginning, it took a while for the for the police officer to realize that I actually lived in that town. <laughs> so then, they, so then finally, you know, they left me alone for a while, but it was always the, those towns leading. If I'm coming late night, you know, two, three o'clock in the morning that, you know, the speed limit is 30, they right behind your tail. And if you go to 35 by accident, boom, they, they pull you over. So, you know, it, and that's frustrating because you know, you're just trying to make it home safe, you know? So, um, you know, so that, that's, 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 that's why we, we got to continue to at least voice ourselves and, and tell our story because, you know, that, that shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be if, if you're, if you're going to speed limit, you're just trying to get home at two in the morning, you shouldn't be harassed. Well, to, to answer, to answer the, the, the question, um, you know, uh, men being profiled versus women would really hit the fan for for women was um not just uh sojourner truth you know she was one of the profile um uh, uh the sister who fled to um cuba for um who fled to cuba to, to you know to get away from america and then sandra bland you know there's so, so many other and it, it's kind of it's kind of one of those things that's that's kept in the dark you know, because it's kind of like they would kind of deny it on either way. But yeah, having I, I, I ran into gender profile when it comes to women, but very few racially profiled questions we got from women who were racially profiled. It's out there though, you know. But this is the reason why these platforms are so needed because, you know, um, for someone like the the young. Um, woman who asked the question that needs to be said that that needs to be said so um yes um um i am i'm sorry that happened to your sister truly am and then um and then it was also asked uh kind of gearing the conversation back back into to our organization um, how would you recommend that organizations like the Y begin to have these kinds of conversations within the organization, particularly when when leadership um, is not as diverse? Well, I would say uh, we got to start getting more people into that leadership role to make it more diverse, to start that conversation, to start that uh, that, that movement, that dialogue. If, if, if that's the problem, then I would say we gotta start there first. Try to get some, you know, a diverse leadership organization going on to then have these type of conversations, to uh, have this type of platform going. Yeah, and, and I feel, you know, it's important to to do these type of programs, bring in, you know, start have these conversations, have these Q and A's with your employees, uh, so at least you could hear them out and get their perspective, you know, on the issues. Because sometimes, you know, it's, it's going to vary, right? Some uh, some places uh, are going to be different than others, so you know, it's, it's gonna, you need to, I guess, start that communication to find out what is the issue in your in your proper town or jurisdiction, you know. Yeah. Pretty much, you know, diversity, you know, um, you know, uh, like I said, we just came to the Noble Conference in Jersey and, you know, the stories that we hear um, sometimes uh, is still shocking to us on how a lot of the, a lot of females, you know, minority females are getting positions in, in, in police departments, um, you know, un under law enforcement, um, you know, diversity, diversity is like how you know, our parents, our mothers fought for us. It's like, we're starting to, you know, hear more and more conversation on, you know, women who had to do papers, 
you know, um, involved in our case to getting a high job at a high ranking place um, in, under law enforcement, you know, so uh, I would say diversity, more diversity. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I think this is a really, um, you know, this is a step in the direction that, you know, as Y professionals, as somebody who is a part of multiple, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion kind of um, committees, that like, this is a first, this is a great first step. This is a, this is a way for us as Y professionals to be able to hear voices like yourselves that are from the communities that are with the communities that have gone through the things and all of that, um, you know, to be able to get a better pulse on what is needed. Um, you know, so super important. Um, and it is, and it's also really important to actually acknowledge too the fact that, you know, the YMCA, like, you know, we're doing the best that we can in the sense that we're, we're attempting to do the work. You know, I think a lot of times people and also organizations have a hard time of looking inward. Um, but, you know, I think with, you know, cases like y'all's and also, like you were saying before, um, you know, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, all of, you know, and the countless others, um, you know, we have to be able to look inward and see how we as an organization can bet, can best reflect what our community is, what it stands for, and how we can support it. So um, this is an awesome, great first step. So we appreciate y'all, again, being able to take time out from your busy lives to talk with us. Um, so just to kind of wrap things up, with everything that y'all have been through, all the things, what is something that you are most proud of with your journey? The fact Oh, sorry. Go ahead. You got it. Oh, no, the, the <laughs> fact that, um, you know, we just came up on the, the April 23rd was actually the anniversary of an accident. And I'm proud that my mother get to see in my face instead of taking flowers to my grave and my daughter being born. Um, for myself, uh, I'm proud that I'm still alive and I'm here and I have a voice and um. I'm able to get my voice shared and presented, you know, across the world. Um, and I just, it's, it's just, it's a good thing. It's just a really a good thing to still be, you know, able to talk and to communicate with people and get them to sh basically to share my story with others. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely proud. And Thank to have survived and still be alive. You know, that, that, that's almost definitely uh, thankful for that. And and then, you know, I'm proud that we are still in a position to be able to tell our story. Uh, you know, we are connecting with the right individuals that are helping us, you know, get to bigger platforms to tell our story. So I feel like, you know, we, we're in the right path. Our foundation's in the right path. We're, we're building and, you know, we even are coming full circle because we actually, just like you said, we are talking directly to the state officials and police departments that uh, got us into this incident. So, you know, the conversation uh, is happening now. So, you know, I'm proud that, you know, we, we are uh, able to go through everything that we've gone through and turn a negative into a positive, probably in the most best way that we possibly could know how. Absolutely. All right. One more time to Michael. Going to kick it over to you. See if we have any last second um, questions for the Jersey Four. So I've, I've got two more for you. Uh, one is uh, what advice would you give uh, young men today to be safe in today's society? Um, and I can only assume that the that the person asking the question means young black men today to be safe in today's society. I would say choose the company that you're around, first of all. Make sure the individuals that you're hanging with are on the same mindset that you are. And, uh, stay positive, be positive. Um, just for myself, having a young son, I tell him to be positive. Have a positive mindset, choose the right friends. Um, just watch out what you're doing where you at 
And if you ever get in an altercation with an officer, listen to what they're saying first before you speak. Watch your body language. Watch your eye contact. Watch your your your, your hand movement, your hand gestures when you're talking. You know, I'm a black male, and sometimes people get we get excited in our hands. You know, start doing gestures and. Uh, not to tick anyone off. So I would tell him, my son, or anyone, you know, be positive, stay positive. And if you ever get in an altercation, meaning a stop with a police officer or anything of that nature, to listen first before you speak and watch your body language and also watch their body language. Yeah, I believe, you know, I, I think uh, it's important, like like Ray said, to, uh, you know, to communicate, to, you know, don't give people a reason, like, uh, at least when it comes to law enforcement, to harass you, at least, you know, answer the questions, um, be confident, um, and, um, you know, you, you, you got you to gotta live your life. You can't live with fear. You just got to be smart and, and, um, and stay on point. You know, and you should be fine. You know, as long as you're doing the right thing, and 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 um, you know, having the the right people around you is important too. So stay away from the wrong crowds. Yeah, pretty much same thing. Just mind the company you keep, because you just never know what someone is into that you're not into, and you're always guilty by association. So, um, you know, I mean. You know, like Danny said, don't live in fear, live your life, but uh, just just know your reputation follows you, you know. Thank, <clears throat> thank you. Um, so you're getting, you guys are getting lots of love in the chat. I don't know if you have your chat open, if you can see, but, um, but you're getting lots of love in the chat. And then finally, uh, from Layla Youssef. Uh, I never knew this story. You should start a social a social media page so you can share with the world. Have you done that? Do you guys have a social media presence that's open yeah. to the public that that we where we can keep track of you guys? Yeah, well, in Instagram is the main. Uh, we we have a duh jersey number four, and then uh, pass number two assists. Those are the two uh, Instagram pages. Um, you know, I got I got my own personal page that you probably could get me from there too. I'm, I'm D Ray is 34, but uh, yeah, Instagram is probably the, the one that we use the most. So the uh, uh, Jersey number four, and then um, we also we, we have a website, pass the number two assist.com um, dot org now dot org. And um, yeah, so uh, we we definitely um, you know with the future endeavors and definitely want to start our own podcast. Uh, I walk the justice podcast. I mean, that's not the name, but I'm just saying, um, you know, future endeavors, hopefully a podcast, you know, hopefully, um, you know, God went from um, my mouth to God's ears, you know, maybe a, um, a justice talk show, you know, not to, not to, uh, not to batter, not to beat up, but to educate. But, but definitely be, be um, uh, aware that we are um, finalizing a documentary that should be finished by this summer. So, Hopefully by the later part of this year, the Jersey Four um, documentary series hopefully will be out somewhere <laughs> for everyone to to watch. Do you know how that's going to be distributed yet? Um, well, we don't we, we don't know. The distributors are waiting to watch the final product. You know, uh, we, um, we 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 partnered up with Slam Magazine. Uh, they have a Respect the Game, a video division that they do the film division. So they're helping us get the distribution, like you know, from the Netflix to the Amazons. They all aware of the project. They just went to put a final uh, to to see to screen it. Uh, right now, we basically just started the editing process. So hopefully, by the end of the summer, we'll be ready to screen it. Awesome. Well, we're looking forward to it again. Gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Um, you, you know, we, we appreciate y'all's time and energy and, you know, keep on keeping on. We really support y'all and, you know, nothing but the best for you all. I, all it's, right? it's, it's the jersey, the number four. I just saw somebody write the four. The four. Oh, the yeah. <laughs> all yes. right. let's, let's make sure we get those handles right so we can follow the men. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's important. All right. Got to get you all that, you know, check, <laughs> verification check on, on IG. All right. And on that note, I just want to thank Rayshawn Brown, Jermaine Grant, and Danny Reyes for taking time to talk with us this evening. It has been enlightening and very valuable to hear your stories as we continue to learn and undo the systemic racism so deeply embedded in our culture and justice system. Gentlemen, again, I hope you have enjoyed being with us and I'm so very grateful to all of you for being connected to the why. So please definitely give your best wishes and our gratitude to Keyshawn um, when you do see him and when you can, all right? Um, again, once again, thanks so much to Darren Anderson, President and CEO of the New Jersey Alliance of YMCAs and Ed Phillips, COO of the Metro Y of the Oranges, as well as our own chapter president, Tracy Crean, for their leadership in making this event happen with YPN. Thank you to Washima Redding, Bill Sanfilippo, and Bethlehem Dress, also from the Metro Y of the Oranges, for their part in planning this conversation. WNJY is produced by Michael Reisman of the YMCA of Bucks and Hunterdon Counties, and all episodes are available to stream on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as our home site at anchor.fm slash WNJY. Excuse me. Our recording from today will be available to share and hear within the next couple of days. In case anyone needs reminding, the Chapter 17 re Returns to Live Professional Development is in two days on May 4th at Loop Claw Stadium in Lakewood. Registration for this event, this event is closed. The information on all YPN Chapter 17 events can be found on our website at www.ypnchapter17.org. Again, thank you all for joining us this evening, and I hope we will see each other again soon. Yes, thank you for having us, everybody. Be safe. God bless. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. I appreciate it. Take care.